0: Uh, Would you like to turn to Romans chapter 9? Romans 9, and I'm going to read from verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this? To make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it. A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Previously, we've seen in this chapter that Paul is dealing with some questions that could arise from some of the the strong, wonderful things that he has said and reveled in, we sense, in chapter 8. He's spoken about being called by God, chosen by God. He said nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those God called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. We are eternally secure. That's the statement in everything. God is working for the good of those who love him. Mighty statements that do us good. But Then some questions arise. If those whom God has called are eternally safe, What then about the nation of Israel? Because surely God called them, and yet not all were saved. Indeed, they crucified their Messiah. Does it mean then that God does sometimes change his mind? Does it mean that it's possible to have been called by God and ultimately been lost? There's some of the the things that Paul is dealing with in this chapter. And his answer, which we've seen in the verses previously when we're looking in chapter 9, were that, well, we make a mistake if we think that the entire nation of Israel is actually God's Israel. God's Israel are those who are, are true descendants of Abraham. In other words, people who share Abraham's faith. And then he goes on to say how God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. He speaks then about Pharaoh, who God was raised up but hardened by God. We've, we looked at all of those things last time. And then that gives rise to the question in verse 19, why does God still blame us? And he, he deals with the passage, in, in the passage that we read together, he deals with some Great mysteries, great mysteries, but the focus in this, in this section is actually on great mercy. It's important that we see that, that we see God's mercy, his greater plan that is actually being worked out and has been worked out, down through history, and indeed that the word that Jenny brought earlier was talking about this great plan that we are caught up in, that began with promises to Abraham, and God has faithfully been working it out, and he 's faithfully working it out now. we are involved in it, great mysteries, but actually also great mercy. Now he raises this question: why does God still blame us for who resists his will? He is making a statement here God is God. No one can resist God's will. God reigns over all of his creation. All of his creation is in his hands. He is sovereign. Back in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20, the nation is facing a crisis. The enemies stacked against them are greater than them. and. Humanly speaking, they don't stand much chance. And Jehoshaphat the king stands up with all the people there, the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. One of the passages, incidentally, that shows us that down through history, God involved the whole family, all ages, including the little ones, which is why the little ones are here this morning. It's there in verse 13. But that's not the point I wish to draw your attention to. I just slipped that one in. Jehoshaphat stands up before the whole assembly of Judah and he prays, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. That's our God. No one can withstand him. That's what Paul is saying here. Who resists his will? God, in creating the world, has not created something that has kind of now eclipsed him. He hasn't created some kind of monster that is now running out of control and God can't control it anymore. He made it. He controls it. Nothing can withstand him. None can resist his will. That then gives rise to the question. If God is in control of everything, if no one can resist his will, how then can we be held responsible? Why does God still blame us? How can we be responsible if everything is what God has decided? If he's in total control, then we're only doing what he made us do, so he can't blame us. Why does God still blame us for who resists his will? That is an important question, very important question, which is why Paul raises it here. You can understand people coming back at him with that question. A very important question, which demands a satisfying answer. And the answer is, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? A question that demands an answer and yet doesn't seem to get one. It's as if Paul slips in a question and then thinks, why did I say that? Because I don't know the answer to it. Preachers sometimes do that. They so warm to their theme and say, you might well say, and they think, well, why did I say that? I don't know the answer. Paul isn't doing that. Why does God still blame us because no one can resist his will? A very good question and actually his answer is a very good one. It looks like he doesn't know the answer but actually it is the only good answer. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? It's a very instructive non-answer because what it's telling us is God is God we are clay. He goes on to say, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? God is God. We are the clay." That he took when he formed Adam and he formed, made a man, breathed in the breath of life and Adam stood up. That's what we are. God is God. When God fashioned us, do we have the right to wave our little finger in God's face and say, this isn't fair. You have, it's, no, it's not right for you to hold us responsible. God's God. It's much greater than us. I wonder if any of you are old enough to remember the days on television of Tony Hart with Morph. Any of you remember Morph and Tony Hart? Fashioned out of clay and then animated. Wouldn't it be outrageous if Tony Hart is there and there's little Morph, I don't know how, about six inches? If Morph had started accusing Tony Hart of things. Well, Morph could be a bit cheeky, but Morph tended to get squashed down again. As is only fitting for the clay that dares to accuse its maker. How dare we come back at God and say, Excuse me, God, that isn't fair? As if we have a standard of fairness that God hasn't quite realized. What is right? What God says is right. Who sets the standards? God. There is no independent system of justice that God has to adhere to. He is the judge of the whole earth. He is the one who is holy, holy, holy. He is the one who is all wise. Our wisdom is so slight. Our understanding is minuscule. How dare we say, why do you still blame us? He knows why he still blames us. He's God, and everything he does is right. Who are you, O man, to talk back to? God. We need to see the contrast and see who we are. It's a very instructive non-answer because it puts us in our place. It tells us that we can't judge God. Verse 14 says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? How dare we say that? As if there's justice that God must bend the knee to. He is... He is the one who determines justice. His throne is a throne of justice. We don't know anything. We are sinners. How dare we speak about justice? How dare we speak about what's what's right? We don't understand. Our hearts are wicked. God is holy. Who are you, O man, to call back to God? We can't comprehend God's mind. And so, verse 21 and 22 Uh, Verse 21, he says, doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same, same lump of clay? Some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use. God's allowed to do that. Then 22, what if? And verse 23, what if? It's just speculating. We can't comprehend God's mind. We can't understand why God does things. We're not in a position to understand. We're clay. He's God. God may have done it like this. We can't, we can't understand it. And we need to be humble before God. Back in chapter three, verse 19, Paul says that when ultimately we come before God, every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Yes, in our ignorance we can say that's not fair when we seek God. Ignorance will then be gone and we'll say, I'm silent. God's God. We don't know anything. Back in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, some words of wisdom. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. Every mouth silence. God is God. We're on earth. We don't have his perspective. We don't see what he sees. We don't know what he knows. So we can't answer back to God. But this God, who, who cannot be resisted, this God who's in control of everything, this God is our God, and if this God has saved us, then we couldn't be in a better place. We couldn't be in greater hands. We were singing, I'm running to your arms, and the Bible speaks about the arm of the Lord. It's, it's, when you run to his arms, he's not going to drop you. He's mighty. Who can resist his will? If he's decided to save, he saves. And we're saved forever. God is God and God is good. That's what Paul is emphasizing in this chapter. We, people can talk back at God, but God is God and God is good. So in verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? That's who we are. We are the objects of his mercy. What Paul is saying here in verses 22 and 23, we'll just glance at it because there's some mysteries here. What if God, choosing to show his wrath, make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, and then to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. What it is not saying is that it's not saying that some people were predestined to be objects of wrath. Other people are predestined to be objects of mercy. Yes, in the NIV, it uses the word prepared twice. Prepared for destruction, prepared for glory. That is unfortunate because actually two different words are used in the Greek. And anyway... In the first case, it says, just prepared for destruction. And the second, he prepared in advance. These are not parallel statements. The objects of his wrath are ripe for destruction. They've made themselves ripe for destruction. God didn't predestine them for that. They are guilty. But there are those God prepared in advance. This is God's work. This is God's hand. Prepared in advance for glory and they are objects of mercy and all Paul is saying is what if he's kind of speculating who can comprehend God's mind he's not making statements here but the statement one statement he is making is that we are objects of mercy and that is the theme of this chapter yes there is great mystery in the chapter but actually this word mercy keeps coming up in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse 16, it doesn't depend on man's desire on effort or effort, but on God's mercy. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And now here it refers to objects of mercy. Get the message, it's actually about God's mercy. The point of the section then, is about the mystery of God's mercy. We, we're not to be distracted by the mystery. We are to be impacted by God's mercy. Tis, the, the, the Wesley's hymn says, "'Tis mystery all." And then goes on to say, "'Tis mercy all." Yeah, there's mystery. What if God... How can we understand God's mind? There are mysteries about it. Hey, but let's get hold of it's mercy or mystery and mercy not distracted and fascinated by the mysteries but getting hold of mercy and being impacted by it god has sovereignly amazingly shown mercy none of us deserved anything good from god none of us none of us deserved anything other than God's indignation and anger, because everyone has sinned. We don't know the depths of our heart. um, Whenever we sing that song uh, that has the line that God knows the depths of our heart, of my heart and loves me the same, it moves me every time, because I don't know the depths of my heart. God does. I have no idea. I know... I think I know how bad I am, but God knows. God can lift the stone and see what's crawling around underneath. He knows motives that I've never been aware of. He knows, he knows the depths of your heart. But he loves you. Mercy. We don't deserve that God should ever look with anything other than indignation and anger at us. But amazingly, sovereignly, He has said, and I I will never understand it. He says, I want you. And I want to deal with your sin. And that because your sin must be punished, I'm going to punish it. But not in you. I'm going to give my dear precious son to take it in your place. And I'm going to watch him bearing my anger about which you will never know so that you need never know it. Amazing mercy. Mercy. Objects of mercy. We should be objects of wrath. Objects of his smile and his favor. Amazing, sovereign mercy. We, we've got no claim on God. We've got no rights. We had no promises. We could argue in and, and wave in his face. He had said, the one whose sins will die. We've sinned. That's the promise. We deserve to die. But objects of mercy. The wonder then of God's mercy is always the theme of worship. We will be singing his praises forever. We'll be worshipping him forever because we're objects of mercy. That is an abiding fact. It is unchanging. We can't uh, undeserve it because we never deserved it in the first place. God designed to, show the, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. That's the point of the section. Here it's about God's mercy and this mercy comes to us, verse 24, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews or out of the Jews but also out of the Gentiles. God's mercy is shown to those whom he has chosen, coming to the few in order to spread to the many. And God's mercy is about much more than a particular nation. You don't belong to God because you happen to be born into the right nation, which is how the Jews had understood it. No, you don't belong to God because you happen to be born into the right nation. You belong to God because he has shown mercy. And so it's calling people out from the Jews, not all of Israel, but out from Israel, and also out from the nations. That includes us, God calling together a people. The mercy of God is not only wonderful, marvelous, it is also very purposeful. And that is what Paul goes on to speak about here with a number of quotations from the Old Testament. God has had mercy for a purpose. Now... If you know that you have received mercy from God, then you are caught up in this purpose. This purpose includes you and affects you. You are part of this. God had mercy on you for a reason. It was to achieve something. And what was that? Well, verse 25, a quote from the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. The purpose of God, the merciful plan of God, was always about more than an ethnic group. It was always about more than one nation. God always had something in mind. Is the promise he gave to Abraham. He said to Abraham, your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. Can you count them? Well, then you'll be able to count your offspring. Your offspring will be like the sand on the seashore. Can you count the sand? Well, then that's how your offspring are going to be. Nations. Nations, he said, are going to be blessed through you. And that's always been God's plan to call a new people. A people who are chosen not by birth, but by by new birth, A people who, by birth, were right outside the people of God. You were not my people, but now becoming the people of God. This is Paul's passion. This is his enthusiasm. God has called him, a Jew, to go to the nations. And he's writing to Rome because he wants to visit the Romans. He knows God's purposes has spilled out from the confines of one nation and now overflows. The mercy of God is reaching out to people from all nations, calling together a people, a people. Not just calling individuals to experience the mercy of God wonderful as an individual to experience the mercy of God hopefully that's why you're here this morning because as an individual of whatever age you have experienced the mercy of God but it wasn't just for individuals it was to call together a people a people Paul says writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 Ephesians chapter 2 And verse 12, or from verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is done in the body by the hands of men. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That was our condition, without hope and without God. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, the Jew and Gentile, making peace. He goes on to say, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. We're built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Just to abbreviate that, that... Quote there from Paul, but we're not individuals anymore. We've been joined to be a people. We come out of lonely individualism or proud individualism. We come out of that to learn how to be a people together. To to move as one doesn't come easily. We all know that. It's much easier to be an individual. To do things your way, to make your own decisions, to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, uh, with reference to no one. God's purpose is a people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be that and to learn how to function as that. And so later on, as Paul is writing to the Romans, as he has spelt out all these truths, he starts dealing with some practical issues, like in chapter 15. And verse um, uh, verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an ideal. So that with one heart and mouth, unity like that, Needs a spirit of endurance and encouragement from God. But God gives that. So as you follow Christ, to be united. That's God's purpose. A people. Not just individuals. Sadly, church history is littered with the story of individuals, many of them great heroes. But people doing their thing. Sensing what God has told them to do. And then doing it as an individual. Sadly, church history for hundreds of years is littered with the story of people getting hold of a vision and then just gathering other people around who shared the same vision, forming a society and then doing it. Why? Because the church was moribund, the church was lifeless, the church wasn't doing anything and if anything is going to happen, it's got to be done by a society, by another group, an organization. And we've inherited that today. The Christian scene is littered with so many societies all doing a great work. But God's purpose was the church. God's purpose was for the church not to be lifeless, but to be the means of his glory coming to the nations, a people together. Sometimes we get hurt, sometimes we get disappointed, and we think, I'm going to forget about the church, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, God's heart, God's heart is a people who are learning about unity, learning about one heart, one mouth, one mind, to make Jesus known. That's God's great purpose, a people. Paul writes to his friend Titus in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 13, we wait for the glorious appearing... Of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what's good. These then are the things you should teach, which I'm doing, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. I hope you don't. We want to be a people together. Not just individuals, gifted individuals, grateful for mercy, but to see the mercy of God was to call together. He ha- there was a nation, Israel, but the purpose was never just one ethnic group. It was a people drawn from every nation who joined together in the church universal that is then manifest in the local church to which we belong and where we work together to be a people together. And not just a people. I will call them a people who are not my people. And I will call her, her, the people, I will call her my loved one. Who presently, currently, is not my loved one. God was speaking through Hosea before the coming of Jesus. And therefore, the people he was calling were not then his people and not then loved by him. But they're coming together to be the people of God. And God says, my loved one. What a wonderful, wonderful purpose God has got. The church, drawn from many nations, is very, very dear to God, simply because it cost him dear. Jesus loved the church, gave himself up for her. (laughs) Wow, what a price. And as far as God is concerned, what a prize. He has won the people that he wanted, and those people are collectively his loved one. If God loves the church like that, then shouldn't we love the church? If the church is the apple of his eye, shouldn't it be precious to us too? We should never despise the church. We should never criticize or play down the church because when we do we're criticizing God's loved one. Husbands, I hope you are your most sensitive issue would be if someone criticized your wife. I hope that's true. I hope you never do it. <laughs> to hear someone Speaking against your wife, I hope, would make you very angry. Sometimes anger is justified. So let me serve notice, if I hear any of you. (laughs) No, I won't pursue that sentence. (laughs) Uh, To hear, if I heard, I have never heard anyone criticize my wife. Who would? (laughs) But if I did, I would be (laughs) cross. (laughs) I serve notice. God loves the church. It's the bride of Christ. He so loved the church, he gave himself up for her. Hey, let's respect the church. Let's love what he loves. Let's not criticize it, play it down, give up on it. Hey, it's the apple of his eye. My loved one I will call them my people. I will call her my loved one. That's God's merciful purpose. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And he's had mercy to call together a people from many nations, churches made up of different types of people, different racial groups, different social groups, called together to work out unity together, to function together. And as we do that, he says, my loved one. My loved one. she so looks at us this morning. He speaks over us. That's my loved one. Together, we're the apple of his eye. We're the object of his love. I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it goes on. It will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Sons of God, his bride, his family, sons of the living God. Remember how Paul said back in chapter 8 and verse 15, you receive the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We've come into a new family. We have a natural family. We have natural parents. They may have been good parents. They may not have been. But God has called us out of our families, he's called us out of our background, and he has become our father. He is our father, and we have a new family. And praise God, if our natural family are part of God's family, that is wonderful. It's a great blessing when your natural family is also part of God's family. But God's family is where we belong. That's where we're gathered in. That's where lonely people find brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, honorary grandparents. We come into God's wonderful family. We've come into a relationship with God where he says, sons of the living God. Joined together, not by birth, but by new birth. And it goes on. Verse 30, what shall we say? That the Gentiles who didn't pursue... Righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it was by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone of faith. We are a people of faith. A family of faith. That's how we join the family. We join the family when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe that he died in our place. We believe that we have sinned. We believe that we couldn't possibly clean up our act. And we see what God has done and we receive it by faith. Having received it by faith, we live by faith. As Paul says in chapter 1, verse 17, this is by faith from first to last. All the way through, we are believing God. And for Israel... That was a stumbling block because they were pursuing relationship with God by the works of the law. They thought by doing things, they would earn God's pleasure. They were not aware of the wickedness of their own hearts. They thought by cleaning up the outward act, God would be impressed. But God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And faith. To simply receive it by faith. Incidentally, I'm discovering that both my ears are the same shape, in case any of you wondered. This is trying to fall off my ear. I will keep going. They stumbled over this matter of faith because they thought their works counted with God. And to simply discount their works and say, I simply believe, oh, that was a stumbling block. They couldn't accept it. I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble. A rock that makes them fall. Yeah, people stumbled over it. But for those who don't, it becomes a rock on which they stand. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame, and we are those who trust in him. We are people of faith. God wants a people, and God wants a people who are the apple of his eye, and a people who simply believe him. Who. Do him the honor of believing that he tells the truth, that what he says he will do. Simply believing him, believing him for righteousness. When we know that we've failed, we still believe in the work of Christ and we believe righteousness is ours. Believing his promises, believing for finance, believing for whatever he's said. We are a people of faith. We don't lapse back into unbelief but we continue to trust him. We continue to believe him. A people of faith. It's how we join the family. It's how we move on with God, not lapsing into anything else, but holding on to what God has said. God is a God of mercy. There are mysteries. Tis mystery all, but tis mercy all. And he's a God of very particular mercy. And I guess each of us has to say, Why me? Why did you love me? Why did you choose me? I don't understand it. I don't know if you understand it for yourself. I don't see how you could. How could God have loved me when he knows the depths of my heart? He knows my history. A particular mercy that absolutely amazes us, staggers us, moves us, causes us to worship. And this mercy is very great, very strong, and it's very purposeful. It's mercy for the church, God's loved people, his family, a family of faith, who are receiving mercy continually, the goodness of God flowing continually. We don't try and earn anything. We don't try and impress him. We come simply by faith in mercy. That's where we are this morning, simply believing in the smile of God, the favor of God, the willingness of God to bless us, irrespective of anything in us. Let's pray. God, we stand in